This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Amanda Mickle and Amy Webb, co-founders of SparkCamp, about how they've redesigned the traditional conference and about their methods for having a lasting effect on participants. We've studied the psychology of groups, and we know that in order for us to achieve a situation where we get people really talking openly and honestly, there has to be a psychological breakdown. Here's Debbie Millman. Earlier this year, Amy Webb came on Design Matters to talk about Data, a Love Story, her book about how she expertly played the internet dating game to find her husband. Today she's back, but to talk about an entirely different project she's involved in. Three years ago, Amy and some colleagues founded Spark Camp, a redesign of the traditional conference. The idea is that the old way of doing conferences needed to be reimagined to encourage a higher level of collaboration. Amy Webb is the CEO of Web Media Group, a digital strategy agency that focuses on near-term emerging technology trends. She's joined by Amanda Mickle, the open editor for The Guardian U.S. Amy and Amanda, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Thank you. Amy, as I mentioned in my intro last time I saw you, you were here on the show to talk about Data, a Love Story, your best-selling book about the world of online dating, consumer behavior, and finding love via algorithms. Congratulations on all of the book's success. Is there a movie deal in the works? (laughs) Nothing that I can talk about publicly right now. Ooh, that sounds promising. (laughs) And how's the marriage? All still good? Everything else is going very well. Thank you. And Forbes recently named you one of the women changing the world. Congratulations on that. We're going to talk about how you are changing the world in a moment. Um, With you today is Amanda Mickle, an editor at The Guardian U.S., Amanda, I understand you also belong to John Kerry's national internet team. And in 2005, you co-founded the New Organizing Institute in Washington, D.C., which is now the leading training institute for progressive activists and techies. So how did you two meet? We met a couple of years ago at a conference. We both, I think, enjoyed what was happening and we thought, wouldn't it be great if there were more opportunities like this. And we had a chat along with uh, three other people who are not here, Andy Pergam, Matt Thompson, and Jenny Aitley. That really was the start of our conversation and our friendship. Talk for a minute about the three colleagues that you're doing this with that aren't here, since we're going to be speaking the rest of the time about the two of you. Um, So there's Matt Thompson, who's at NPR and is in charge of, he says, like all projects, small, miscellaneous, large too, I imagine. Matt is a tremendously lovely and smart person. And when we came up with this idea of doing Spark Camp, Matt and I had actually had a call on the side because I knew him, although I didn't know Amy as well and I didn't know Andy as well. And the two of us had said, you know, what would make this really meaningful for us? Like why, why would we invest time into creating events we spent a lot of time going to them, and the idea of spending even more time making them wasn't a sort of deal yet. And we had agreed that if we could do an event that would reach out to women, involve women, and also be a diverse event, that for us it would be meaningful. And we found out that when we talked to Amy and Andy, they felt very much the same way. 
Sounds like starting a band. <laughs> yeah, except that I didn't know that you guys had a side uh, conversation. It was this weird moment where I got everybody to sit down at a table and I said, you know, if I put some money up, you guys want to experiment and throw a little party together. And I, I thought when you guys said, yeah, sure, you meant, yeah, sure. I didn't know there were extra conversations. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things that when people come together, sometimes in such a sort of chaotic way, even though it feels like it's really neat because you look back and you think, okay, here's the moment when we made the decision. And for me, like this is actually one of the most meaningful elements of Spark Camp is that it's had such an organic evolution. You go into it, right, with a lot of intentionality. You think back, okay, we made all these decisions and we had these meetings to decide this and this and this. But how it evolves in retrospect is actually a bit sort of like messy and chaotic and lots of left turns and things that just sort of happened. So my big question of the day is this. Why does the world need another conference? So first of all, I would argue that Spark Camp is not a conference. We've been very grateful that in the past week or so, there's been a lot of press around what we've uh, been doing. We released a report that deconstructs our model. And everybody's calling us an unconference. So I want to set their record straight. We are not an unconference. When I hear the word unconference, I think it's a bunch of people getting together with um, post-it notes and Sharpie markers. There's a schedule on the board, and whoever's the tallest and the fastest is going to slap that on the board, and that's what everybody's going to talk about. And that's a really terrible way to design a a conversation. Let's just backtrack for one second, because I even think the word unconference might be new for some listeners. What is the difference between a conference and an unconference? And then what are you trying to do with Spark Camp? So I think, you know, if you attend a conference, you usually know who the speakers are in advance. You have a schedule and you know that there's a way in which you can plan and prepare your time before you even arrived. But with many unconferences, the attendees are asked to help create the schedule. You're not told, okay, from 9 to 9.45, we're going to be discussing X. And in fact, what you're going to discuss during that time is something that's figured out by the attendees when they arrive. For a lot of conferences, there's a rote model, right? We rely on speakers, we have panels, and we know that we're going to have a presentation for 45 minutes and no longer than one hour and 15 minutes. And then we're going to move on to the next and move on to the next. And then we're going to eat some food and move on to the next. And you <laughs> and know, it really is a pretty formulaic model for these things. Yeah. I mean, it definitely feels a bit like, you know, Ford would be proud of, <laughs> of what we've done here. With the unconference, it's a little bit difficult to unpack because the word itself is via negativa. It's what it's not. What's interesting, though, is that the unconference, even though it's relatively young, already has a sort of default model. You arrive at the event And usually within a short period of time, a board is placed at one end of the room and people are asked to write down something they'd like to talk about and put it on the board. And they'll literally put it on the board in a square. That's part of the schedule. Right, which is maybe session A, which is held in the small room between 9 and 9.45. And there are lots of reasons why people want to meet others professionally. What what are some of those reasons? And obviously networking. For us, we've been focused a lot on people who work in media and technology. And there, there are issues that a lot of us are grappling with, whether they're issues of design, storytelling, and data. And we know from what people read that they're seeking ideas and solutions and discussion beyond their own profession. And yet a lot of professional events are actually quite constrained. They still work within a specific industry. You know, it's increasingly clear that solutions are multidisciplinary. A lot of organizations are looking to 
solve problems by bringing people together across different disciplines. And for us, Spark Camp really speaks to that. The whole idea is to spark new ideas and connections and to really introduce people to those they would love to meet but didn't know who they were. People who are truly innovative and creative are are those who are constantly looking outside of what they know and taking time to reflect and to have thoughtful conversations. Between the five of us, the four of us, you know, we go to the same conferences. We are the talking heads at these conferences, and we do a good job, but, you know, there's only so much that you're going to learn by traveling in the same circles over and over again. And yet there's a world full of problems. So from our point of view, we wanted to convene a small, intimate group of people around a central topic, people who would normally not come into contact with each other, and give them a framework through which problems could be solved, new alliances could be formed, new partnerships could be explored, and at the very least, new conversations with different people who you would normally not talk to would happen organically. You know, when you asked this question, like, why does the world need another professional event? It's funny because when we started this off, I think we really just wanted to improvise and play a bit and see what we could do. And if you had asked us then, we would not have had an answer. But we feel like we've come to an answer in virtue of holding events and listening carefully to people's feedback and listening to what it is that they're telling us that they're looking for professionally. And then each and every time we hold a spark camp, we try and get closer to that solution. But we also know that it shouldn't be ephemeral. So one of the challenges in this space is that you go, you talk to a bunch of people, and then it's over. It's, just, it's very, very difficult to have any momentum. For us, we have done these experiments. We've collected data. We are not in the business of creating singular events that happen over a weekend. And going forward, we have much bigger, grander plans that we are starting to implement. I feel like um, this is a show today not only about a new kind of way of facilitating information and inspiration, but also very much an entrepreneurial episode in terms of you started with nothing and created something that's growing and changing and developing. How did you even come up with the idea to do something like this? I know that you had some misgivings about the way in which people were coming together to network and to conference, but what gave you the idea that even starting a new kind of conference would be a good idea or get any traction? For me personally, you know, I go to a lot of conferences for work, and I really suffer from conference fatigue, and yet I still want to meet really interesting people. I feel like the more that I've progressed in my career, like I'm not just seeking to learn what someone's done, but to really debate and discuss with them how they go about different problems and issues, and that you get to a point at which the presentation, the sort of exposition, isn't enough. And that you're really seeking to have peers who can help teach and instruct you. And, you know, I remember when we first did it, the whole idea was, let's see what we can do. And let's try and host an event that's more fun and collaborative, that challenges people more. And how can we sort of move away from the presentation model? And, you know, our ideas have really evolved since then. We've tried a lot of things that haven't worked. And I think we've tried to pay very close attention to what's worked and continue to iterate around those things. It was a design challenge. And I would say that even if I was not on a a show about About design. design. (laughs) But it it works out so well. I can vouch I've heard it before. But but it really was. It was a design challenge. You know, I try really hard when I go to events and meetings and stuff to pay attention to the content. 
I find that I hear so much repetitive content and so little that's new that my mind drifts off to design. I really do. I start thinking about things like where the chairs are placed and is that an opt- <laughs> I mean, you know, is that an optimum way of grabbing people's attention? Um, I was in a very long board meeting not too long ago and everybody was incredibly uncomfortable because they didn't do the math right and the way that they had put the tables forced everybody to really be on top of each other. And I can tell you that people got cantankerous and short with each other because it was a warm room and there wasn't enough physical space per person. It's something that could have easily been solved by putting an extra table in, which they actually had. So I keep thinking about design. And if the outcome of these things is to create a better society, help people be more informed, all of that, then what's the optimal way to design that? And that's the place that we started from. So if we're going to produce something, what are we going to do that's different? And so we started coming up with lots of different ways to do that. But we did very much keep an a spirit of innovation and iteration. Amanda's not kidding. I mean, we've logged thousands of hours since we started. You know, in a lot of cases where other people may have a sort of pro forma event figured out and they run it, we don't do that. We are constantly redesigning and tweaking. And, you know, if I was the editor of a graphic shop, I would shoot me. Uh, because, you know, or a client, right? One more iteration. Exactly. We are never quite done, but it's true. You know, it's odd that we waited so long to have an actual logo and a website. That's um, right. Design Matters doesn't have one either. Well, you know, but but it turns out that when we really started tweaking the design conceit of what we were doing, we actually worked with a company to come up with multiple ways of expressing visually who we were because – We wanted to create a sense of summer camp, regardless of where we were at, and that meant having certain elements. But it also sets the mood differently. It does the opposite of having a warm room and too many people sitting around the same table. I was thinking about the polarities that seem to exist in the way that we're meeting people now. So, for example, Amy, obviously in your book, Data, A Love Story, you talk about gaming the online dating system because that's primarily how people meet each other now. And if you were interested in going to find a mate, that would likely be the venue that you would go to first online. Yet, when it comes to professional meetings, professional outreach, It seems to me that, as Amy, you've said, conferences and meetings are one of the defining ways that media industry organizes itself around new ideas. And I thought that was so interesting, the notion that in business we need to congregate and network face-to-face somehow, or that feels like that is the most meaningful way of engaging. And yet online, it's become very much a point-and-click kind of experience. So the funny thing is that we actually – take a similar approach to figuring out who should be at camp. Now, that's very interesting. I I read all of the documents that you use to create this event, and the way in which you choose people is somewhat astonishing. And that's that's an understatement. So talk about how you actually find people that you want to invite, because you do want to get out of those same people that you know and expect to be at conferences. Once we decide the conversation that we want to have, and again, our goal is to not have something ephemeral where we just get people together and then we're done. We want there to be tangible outputs as a result of that weekend. 
So we, not quite falling in love, but, you know, professional well, connections that have chemistry. Although I think we've had some people fall in love at camp, so it's a separate issue. We start with a list of many hundreds people, 600 people. And Where do you find that list? How do you get it? It's stuff that we create. You know, we will find names. We have a system online for people to suggest themselves or somebody else. We'll also, when we start off, we'll pick a theme. And then for that theme, we'll come up with a list of questions that for us sort of define the parameters of the theme. So the money conference had to do with, is there a way to make money off of content and the work that journalists and other content producers are trying to do? So we were asking questions about business models, stuff having to do with taxes. We had questions about um, new revenue streams. New revenue streams. Um, who are the money makers? Like mm-hmm. who makes the deal? Sometimes we'll reach out to experts and say, you know, if you were going to have a conversation addressing this question, who would be the names that would pop up first? And so we'll filter all of this into a giant spreadsheet. We will also have created a matrix mm-hmm. where we know that we want to have, let's say, for our design camp, you know, we wanted like a handful of people doing user experience design. We wanted a handful of people who were graphic artists. We wanted some academics. We wanted, you know, this and that, the other. How many people do you generally have at a conference? Around 70 is our target. Mm-hmm. And, so it really uh, is handfuls, not... Yeah. Right. And so we basically have all these criteria that don't define any one individual, but they describe the composition of the group. So we'll say, okay, we would like these sorts of institutions represented, people with these sorts of experiences. We want people from the large and small institution. And then we begin to research. And so this is where we've got a great little anecdote. Our last camp was on storytelling. And we are almost exclusively focused on the future of so what, what is next? The future of anything. So right. the future of money, the right. future of data, the future right. of storytelling. So what's the future of storytelling look like? Netflix had just recently before this produced House of Cards and that had come out. And it really was causing people to change the conversation about how content is produced and distributed and what it means. You know, here's Netflix, which is a company that a couple of years ago was sending you a DVD in a red envelope. And now suddenly they've got these marquee names um, in a compelling, amazing drama it wasn't broadcast on television. It was over the internet. And suddenly now we're talking about binge viewing, right? So it, just, it was a paradigm shift. And so we knew that we wanted people from Netflix. And so we were looking not just at the directors and the writers. We were looking at you know, the lead engineer that helped figure out via algorithm that this is the right way to tell this story. And then we were looking at actors. Corey Stoll is the person that we wound up reaching out to. There were other actors that were higher profile. You might think that it's a no-brainer. Well, they'll, you know, they'll just invite Kevin Spacey because he's the star of the show. And in this case, we decided that Kevin Spacey wasn't sparkly. So how do you define sparkly aside from twinkly? Well, well, we've, well we've, just, <laughs> yeah, we, we've actually had these discussions about sparkly. So we will say that someone who is sparkly or we'll sometimes say someone who has sparkles. Or bad sparkles. Or bad, yeah, we also talk about, yes. But someone who is sparkly is someone who is open-minded. It's someone who wants to engage with others. Who wants to learn as much as they do teach. Right. So it's really about an attitude or approach because what we'll sometimes say, which doesn't sound nearly as sparkly as like a douchebag can destroy a dinner party. Like one person yeah. can actually have a really toxic effect Isn't that on incredible? a discussion. It's yes. absolutely astounding how that happens. Right. And so part of what we try and do, and this is honestly the area that can be, it's so incredibly time consuming. We really try and bring people together who 
want to debate and to discuss and to explore ideas and themes with other people. Because the whole point is to bring together people who can learn from each other and not by delivering a monologue. So Corey Stoll, he was one of the main characters. He was the bald guy who played the governor who was sort of corrupt and having all kinds of problems. We watched a lot of footage of him just being interviewed by random people. And it turns out he's kind of academic. He pushes back a little bit. He's not at all what you would, you know, if you think of sort of a Hollywood star type, that is not, at least from what we were able to gather. We talked to his agents. We talked to people that knew him. And that was all to decide whether or not we should invite him. We go through that a hundred times. And even if one of our alumni suggests to us, you should have so-and-so at the next camp, we will spend hours looking at what that person's posted on social media. We will look at their photos that they've posted. We will call people that they know. We're like the CIA because we want to make absolutely sure not just that they are sparkly, but that they're going to get along really well with everybody else who's there. And so another thing that we do is load balance. We want to make sure we have a lot of introverts because we are strong believers in the power of introverts at events like ours. We want to balance those with extroverts. We want to make sure that we've got people who are a little cantankerous and some people who are more easygoing. This design of the group can -hmm. sometimes take four or five months. Now, what would give you the sense, and not to be in any way cantankerous myself, what would give you the sense that had you invited Kevin Spacey that he would have said yes? That is what I bring to the group. Deep connections. It's partially connections. It's partially if you were to ask me if I saw a glass as half full or half empty, I only see the glass as 100% full. It never occurs to me that anything I do in life, somebody's going to say no. And that's not me being a Pollyanna or me being overly optimistic. It is the way that my brain is wired. If I were to find Kevin Spacey and send him an invitation, it wouldn't occur to me that he would say no. But assuming that someone somewhere would say no to you, how do you get around that? Do you, do you know when to give up? Do you ever accept no? Amanda's like, yeah, we accept no. I usually don't. But I'm trying to remember, is there anybody who's been really like, we? damn it, we didn't get that person? I mean, it's usually more about complications. When we first started Spark Camp, we had to do a lot more work to explain ourselves. Yeah. Like, this is what Spark Camp is. And we were in the process of describing it. And so... A lot of people did come because they knew one of the five of us at the time so that we could vouch for. I mean, it was a little bit of a leap of faith, but they trusted their professional relationship with us. Yeah, but we're in a position now where we actually for this last one for storytelling, we did have some very high profile people in Hollywood whose names I will not name making very strong cases that we should include them, which meant that I was getting a lot of email from agents and managers and from them and from other people that we knew in common. And it wasn't a comment on them. They just didn't fit the group. This is one of the hard things. Like people will ask us sometimes, why didn't I get invited or what does yeah. it take to get to Spark Camp? And I know we've talked about this. It can be a really awkward conversation because we're not trying to compose the perfect group per se. We're trying to compose a great group. And what happens is that, you know, we spend these months researching. Then each of us gets a vote. And then we review those who get the most votes. And we ask, is this the right composition of guests? And we don't want, for example, five people from the same company. So this causes us to go through and basically we'll vote several times over until the composition meets our criteria. And we do a lot of this with math. Of course you of do, course Amy. We do. You're involved. We have the world's most complicated spreadsheet. This is the thing that nobody else does. And this is why you have conference fatigue and you have people with a desire and a desperation to connect on some level with others in their space or in other spaces. And it doesn't happen. The level of 
what we're talking about here is just not done. It's a difficult process. It also means that we're under a lot of pressure. We devise some rules. We can't invite, like I can't nominate somebody who I work with or who I serve on a board with, but that doesn't solve all the problems that we have with folks who are upset with us. Are you worried at all about being perceived as highly, highly exclusive? We are highly exclusive, but it's exclusivity in a different way. One of the things that we do so well because of this process is we find the next movers and thinkers and doers and leaders, and we bring them together with the people who are more established. So let's talk about money for a second. You had a a spark camp whose theme was money, but there's an interesting fact about spark camp that we haven't talked about, and that is you don't charge people to go. So how did you get this off the ground financially? I know you had some initial support from O'Reilly and you had some funding from the Knight Foundation, two names that are really already giving you some credibility. How were you able to create a conference with a little bit of money but then not charge people that you were inviting to be there? We spend our money only on the things that we absolutely need. And I have to say – Sort of the opposite of TED. You know, it's like (laughs) you have this exclusive conference that costs, you know, a bazillion dollars to go. And then you have this other exclusive conference now where it doesn't cost anything. I have to say I'm really glad that we started off with a small budget because one of the great things about Spark Camp, I think, is the food. And we actually have great food now because we could not afford – university vendor contracts. I mean, the cost of, you know, going through a university vendor just to get people coffee can be thousands of dollars. And the budget we initially had for our first event was $10,000. And so we found all these ways to cut costs. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure it was a great event. And I actually think that we're for the better for it in the long run, because, you know, we sought out kitchens in New York that were really cheap, but had amazing food. And I think we went further on the amazingness side of food to make up for the fact that we weren't paying as much for it. And it made it for a much better event. The hallmark of what we do is that we are extremely lean and it is not to the detriment of the content or anything else. It's meant to sort of feel like camp. You know? I, do you have any interest in monetizing this for yourselves? For ourselves? Man, paying yourselves? Doing anything to... <laughs> Make a profit? (laughs) So, yeah, we recently announced our plans for the next wave of what we're going to be doing. That means not just hosting a a few camps a year, but hosting camps along a sort of thematic track and holding one-day summits that sort of go into those themes. We've been approached by a lot of different companies for us to produce a spark camp internally for them. So like a huge corporation would have us come in and we would take 30 of their people and 30 of our alumni or others and produce a, you know, a day-long or a two-day camp around a theme that's important to them. And for that, we would charge. So we have big plans for the future of what we have begun and what we're building, which comes back to the very beginning question. You know, we don't see ourselves as conference organizers. It's more than that. It's part think tank. It's part convening. It's just a very unique next-generation way of looking at society and the problems that are there and collaborating in order to solve them. In developing Spark Camp, I know that you spent a lot of time thinking about introverts. And you stated that it turns out that introverts don't usually love big conferences. They're not designed for folks who are shy. Yet, you believe that introverts tend to have the most impact and are the secret stars of your Spark Camps. So in what way and how so and why introverts? 
I'll let our resident introvert answer that question. You know, when we were researching people to bring to Spark Camp, one of the things we do is we look to see what people are posting online. And, you know, sure enough, there are a lot of people who we would discover from talking to an executive at a company and saying, like, who's behind this? Like, who's done some amazing work? And oftentimes it might not be someone who has such a large online presence. And it actually, I think, posed some really interesting questions for us about who we would invite to the event. But what we found just from asking people who attend Spark Camp, like, who did you connect with? Who are the people who you're going to continue to have conversations with? And the names they wrote down tended to be the introverts in the group. Spark Camp is focused on a discussion, and you have to be just as good of a listener, (laughs) if not better, than you are a speaker. We collected data on this last camp, and we we, um, parsed it into a relationship map. And that's, I think, when it really hit home for us. It was really astonishing to see the nodes and how the relationships really evolved back to the people who are not the usual suspects in the room, who talk the most. It was fascinating. They said the least in bigger groups. But what was clear to us was that they were having 10-minute, 20-minute conversations with everybody. It just goes back to this idea that it's about intimate, personal conversations around actionable things. That's what people desire, whether they're introverts or extroverts. Amy, what's a relationship map? Uh, Yes. So what it looks like is a bunch of bugs. It looks like like a green dot that's sort of big and then coming off of the green dot like a bunch of legs, maybe a bunch of little blue dots. And that dot is connected to another bigger dot. So we asked everybody who were the five people that you valued the most, who had the most impact on you. We put that into a spreadsheet and then took the spreadsheet and popped it into a piece of software that I use. And it populated a sort of visual that made it easy for us to very clearly understand that there were a handful of people that everybody felt had the most impact on them. And then those people happened to be the folks who were more quiet. It seems that the culture has somewhat caught up with the power of introversion, whether it be TED Talks or best-selling books. There seems to be a lot of data available now and cultural conversations about what introverts bring to any particular situation, which is particularly heartwarming for my many students that I teach in my presentation classes that are terrified to talk in front of others. Why do you think that this has come to be something so intriguing to people? I mean, we are we are not fascinated by the people who are the great talking heads. Anytime that somebody speaks to an introversion, right, they have a fear of giving presentations, they are afraid of giving a talk in another language or whatever. But an introvert is someone who gets energy from being on their own. An introvert's not necessarily afraid of talking or afraid of being in front of other people. It's actually where you get your source of energy. If you're an introvert, the reason why events can sometimes be really difficult is because you're spending so much energy relating to other people. Being extroverted just takes more energy than being introverted. And I think, you know, some of the things that we have done have been to focus on discussion, which is to think about ways to elicit information from people to host discussions that's relatively easy and personable, right? So you don't feel like you're making extra effort to relate to people. And you're not having to formally interview them. And, or introduce yourselves. Or introduce yeah. yourselves. It's about things like giving people time between sessions to recuperate. We don't allow people to leave. Once you get to camp, we 
allow you to take a few photos and Instagram stuff if you want at the beginning. But then we say we don't really want your screens up anymore. There is downtime, but it's organized downtime. So you are with us. People really are not supposed to go anywhere else. We've built in some time for introverts or people who just need an energetic recuperation period where they can sort of be on their own. We have yoga. We've got running. We had a calligraphy class at our, at our last camp for people who want to participate. We've studied the psychology of groups. And we know that in order for us to achieve a situation where we get people really talking openly and honestly and getting to those important golden nuggets, there has to be a psychological breakdown. And that's only going to happen with a lot of time spent together, uninterrupted, some alcohol. What do you mean by psychological breakdown? When we host Spark Camp, we've now begun, we've now think of it as like, you know, sort of like how David Weinberger will speak about things, small pieces loosely joined, and the idea that it's a series of small events. And then each one in and of itself is complete somehow. And this is something actually that we've, I think, really improved over time. And so if you now come to Spark Camp, we have an introduction in which we really invest time in introducing people to the camp. When we ask people to help us devise the program for the camp, we give people pitch cards and ask them, turn to the person to your right, then turn to the person to your left and pitch them your idea. And then write down that sort of final draft and put on the table and go up and vote. So each and every part of the camp is its own element. And they progressively get more and more intimate. And so we just know that halfway through the second day, people have now talked to each other a few times. They're tired. People call it fat camp um, because of the amount of the types of food that we feed people, which itself becomes an event. It's a series of psychological barriers that we try to push everybody through. You stated that you value intimacy over publicity. What do you mean? What we've used from food camp the friend yay, which is the, you know, the friend non-disclosure agreement. We ask people, it's sort of like with Vegas, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, <laughs> um, although we're not so explicit about it. Um, but we ask people to, you know, set aside their devices, but also to give people the assurance that they can speak without you broadcasting what they say. And we feel like that's because we're bringing together people who have tremendous experience and we want them to be able to speak with nuance. We want them to be able to talk not just about what they've done well, but frankly, things that they have tried that haven't worked well, but without incurring that greater cost that comes by broadcasting it to the world. <laughs> and, and, and that's been to our own detriment, quite honestly. I was going to say, where do you get, how do you build the buzz? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out right now. So if anybody has any suggestions, we're all yours. <laughs> now, you did say that you want to create that sort of psychological breakdown in order to get to those nuggets. Are there any nuggets you can share in terms of what's come out of Spark Camp or what people have achieved via Spark Camp? Mm -hmm. Broadly speaking, it's a lot of media partnerships, which don't seem exciting, but there are partnerships in different ways. So we've got Schools partnering with traditional media organizations. We have technology companies, which for the first time are looking at nonprofits in a new way. And again, you know, we have always been focused on journalism and technology that's going to be changing going forward. There are new pieces of content that have come out as a result. In one case in Texas, Wendy Davis, the local lawmaker who became famous for filibustering a, a very stringent abortion law and wearing pink sneakers the entire time, that uh, wound up being live streamed and seen worldwide. And it is due in part to the fact that the folks over there who were in charge of that are alumni. 
and got with other people who were able to connect them with other people through our network, and um, they were able to make that happen. In a document you recently published about Spark Camp titled Mastering the Art of Sparking Connections, you dedicated it to a woman you love, Julia Child. Aside from the obvious homage to her great book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, why did you dedicate the document to her? You know, we dedicated to her for a few reasons, and I wonder if we all had the same (laughs) reasons by doing it. Um, So one is we thought that Julia Child's someone who really brought people together to enjoy something as simple as food. And what we hope is that with Spark Camp, that people really enjoy the discussion. And just like her, you know, she is obviously a tremendous cook and has this way of taking a dish from start to finish and, and creating this chemistry that you would have both at a dinner party but on your plate. And that's really what we hope to do with Spark Camp is we hope to create this chemistry between people professionally and personally. And we hope in some way that the event too is it sort of nurtures them. Like the feedback that we generally get from people is that it was like a, a relief. We've heard from people who said, you know, I was going through this time in my career trying to do things that were different and not making much progress. And now I've met people who will help me get there. Or we've had people come to Spark Camp and leave their jobs and go on to do something new. And I think about 10 percent of our campers quit their jobs after every camp. And then go on to do other things as opposed Bigger, to end up face down in the street. <laughs> but back to Julia Child. I mean, one, one other little known fact about her, and this is why I was excited to dedicate it to her, is that she was a shrewd businesswoman and a real innovator and a real entrepreneur and a woman in a field that was not at all inclusive of women, and I would argue today is still not inclusive of women. And one of the things that we care deeply about in general, just as people, and then also at camp, is that you got to have a variety of people and voices at the table. You have to. We are at least 50 percent women with everything that we do. We are at least a third people of color. We are usually a quarter LGBT from our point of view, Julia Child was a maverick in that way. Now, Mastering the Art of Sparking Connections, it's not really a manifesto, but it sort of is too. Is this something that people can read online? Can they get a better sense of what you're trying to do here? What we wanted to do was sort of distill down some of the values and techniques of Spark Camp and to explain a bit about what we see as the formula that we use to create events. And so that formula is public now. That formula is now public, yes. And our hope, too, is to hear from other people who can convene events. Because, you know, while we've been studying very closely, I think, the high-profile, large-scale events that people certainly pay a lot of money for, by publishing this, we're really hoping to hear from people who we wouldn't otherwise have heard from. We are very much collaborators, and our hope is that uh, we'll hear back from people and that hopefully people will take the lessons that we've learned and improve the events that they have because strong events only make our community stronger. Now that you've hosted almost a half a dozen camps, I understand that you're beginning to answer the question, what else can Spark Camp do? What have you come up with so far? Can you share anything? One thing that we know is that these events shouldn't be ephemeral. What we are intending to do going forward is to host more camps, is to have somewhat broader notions of themes each year and to fit gatherings and functions into that big topic area. So that'll be a spark camp. That'll be a day-long gathering. We have a few ideas around exchange programs. So one of the themes that we're exploring is the future of work. It's highly likely that we will have alumni in totally different fields. Like one person who works as an academic would go to a 
huge corporation for three days and, and not just shadow, but like work there for three days. And then the other person would come back. We believe in experiential learning. What does um, that mean? That means having hands-on experience, being there with that person and going through the experience slowly versus just listening to some presentation. So we're talking about infiltrating communities and ideas in many, many different ways. Um, and so Spark Camp will become a much broader, denser thing. We are also going to be taking on clients and producing internal Spark Camps. So right now, the atomic unit of Spark Camp is the camp. But when we think about Spark Camp long term, what we're talking about are different sorts of atomic units. And the conceit we've often talked about is like the a little bit of like a pop-up think tank, like a new mm-hmm. kind of collective. And the idea being that we're increasingly living in a multidisciplinary world and finding different ways, right, to help build connections with people who are working on related problems, but in totally different contexts and in totally different professions. And like, how are the ways in which we can help people build relationships so that their work becomes easier and more fulfilling? And so the camp is just one unit of that. But certainly... A lot of people ask us if they can attend spark camps. We'd like to be able to have more people attend spark camps. Or spark things, spark gatherings. Yeah, exactly. We want to be able to help more people. We're in capacity building mode at the moment. So we are fundraising and we are hoping to welcome 2014 as a, uh, a year of dramatic expansion. Well, congratulations on all of your success thus far. And thank you for making such a big effort to change the world one small, smart sparky group at a time. (laughs) Thank you. Amy Webb and Amanda Mickle, thank you for being on the show today. To find out more about Spark Camp, you can go to sparkcamp.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 